Welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. Today we have a great Q&A episode for you. We talk about training without power, surviving your desk job, lunch ride syndrome, and that's in quotes, and the benefits of fixies. All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Well, we are sitting down again today for another episode of Fast Talk, a Q&A episode. We've got a great guest. He is a bit of a New England legend. I want to hear how he gained that status here in a second. Um, He has a quote-unquote preference for coaching less elite athletes, beginners, if you will, people that are looking to do events uh, but not necessarily race. So, and he also has a huge racing background himself. Welcome to Fast Talk, Amos Brumble. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Are you aware of your legend status? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how do you think you acquired that legend status? Is it the racing background? Is it the the charm? Is it the guinea pigs that you have? What? What's what? Is it all of those things? I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, some of it's just durability. I've been doing it for a long time. I think I'd probably come across as a nice guy. For New England. For New England, yeah. You, I've, I've... you say that as if you're surprised. <laughs> people yeah. think I'm a nice guy, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's easy to be pretty sarcastic with people. So I think I kind of have been one of those people that has always been able to encourage new people, um, but was comfortable with racing at a much higher level on on my own really really enjoy competition personally but don't i i usually don't expect other people to actually do competition i just enjoy the fact that they like to ride well today we want to talk a little bit about training without power uh some follow-up questions on low cadence work uh, an episode we did not too long ago we have some follow-up questions there uh we've got a question about how to survive life at a desk job and can you do things to improve training recovery can you transition from a, that sedentary life into being an athlete in better ways can, can we'll talk about that benefits of riding a fixed gear bike and plenty more today so let's uh let's dive into it shall we sounds great this first question comes from david hendry who lives near seattle washington he asks Suppose a 55-year-old athlete is training with a heart rate monitor and perceived effort and recovery scales and is able to train between 10 and 16 hours a week, no power measurements. The athlete's goal, and I assume here that this athlete, David Hendry, is speaking in the third person, the athlete's goal is to maximize performance on gravel races, about 100 miles and about 10,000 feet of climbing, which, with the exception of the first 20 miles or so, basically means a long time trial effort. Given that goal and training context, how would you recommend that a training plan be structured? I ask this question because so much of the discussion on your podcast references power, which is true, but we also do reference heart rate, RPA a lot, and we'll get into that. I understand why, but I don't have a power meter in part for cost and in part because heart rate is enough, quote, quantification. I'm interested in the meaning and aesthetics of riding hard. Now, before we get into it, I also want to read, because it's a interesting quote that David included with his email from the none other than Mario Cipollini. And he, he included this quote because I think he talks about this as the sort of how he sees the sport, that power might be 
ruining the sport or making it uh, too much about the numbers and not so much about the style and the essence of, of riding. So here's Mario's quote. Quote, we know everything about their watts, their heart rates, but of what interest? That doesn't tell us anything about them. If we knew that a rider cannot produce more than 450 watts, then yes, that would be interesting to see on a screen that he's reached his limit. But then again, this is just data, useless gadgets that imitate Formula One and can only interest people who know nothing about cycling. Okay, so let's get to the heart of David's question here. Amos, do you have some thoughts that you'd like to start us with? Somebody that doesn't like to train with power, has a goal in mind, a big goal, what would you what would you start with here in terms of coaching him? Well, usually the first thing that stands out is how old the athlete is. He's 55 and saying that he can ride 10 to 16 hours a week along with some of the other stuff that he's kind of mentioning makes me think that he has a big background in cycling somewhere, uh, which he may have started and not had a power meter you know, maybe he didn't even have a heart rate monitor at the time. Um, so I think the perspective can be of somebody who says, I've done this for a long time. I have these level of capabilities. You know, why, why bother with a power meter? Um, and a lot of times, like, the answer is you may not want to, you know, and that's, that's perfectly fine. I think the best athletes I've ever seen have always been very attuned to things like perceived exertion. And they do an incredibly like, accurate job of giving themselves just enough training load to improve, but not so much that they get exhausted. And, but that in my mind is one of the things that separates like natural athletes from the average, you know, Joe that would get on a bike and just start pedaling around. And if he's capable of that, then, then yeah, going around and looking at perceived exertion, you know, mileage goals or hours on the bike, you know, he'll be able to build an effective plan. He asks, how would you recommend that a training plan be structured? Anything different about a training plan in terms of its structure if somebody isn't using power? It, I would venture to say that most of the same rules apply. Would you agree? Yeah, I would apply all the same training. The only thing that would really vary is the numbers that he would look at. An athlete, let's say he's going to use perceived exertion and a heart rate monitor, and he's got some kind of like a watch or something. So he's going to time his intervals. I mean, my experience has been is that if an athlete knows how to feel the power that they're putting out, they can they can do an interval you can give them like a range of heart rates, you know, which, you know, zone training, which is pretty popular like years ago, and they can put out a required power. The only workouts that I see that are really power dependent are a lot of like kind of the micro intervals that you see offered and, you know, like in structured plans now. And those are kind of harder to quantify with just perceived exertion, if that makes any sense. The normal thing is, is it, it doesn't mention that he's trying to keep up with anybody. He just wants to maximize performance. I mean, there's, for me, the maximized performance in long gravel races like that, the standard plan would be to stay with the, the fastest people as long as you could because they would pull you to your best time, essentially, and then you just need to be able to ride to the finish at whatever pace you can maintain. I mean, that's I don't know at what level he's competitive at, and it, it kind of leaves some of that out. 
Trevor, why don't you jump in here and, and, and talk a little bit about, um, you know, your, from your perspective, what, what would you say to, to David? Yeah, I'm still actually a little surprised by what you said. We're, we're focused on power. What about heart rate and RP? Because I would say that's been one of our themes is that power doesn't tell you what's going on internally. And you really need to know what's going on with your body and an understanding. I think we've always been big proponents of know the feel. Heart rate is an internal measure to look at that. And certainly when you're doing gravel, training for something like a, a long gravel event with my athletes, I, mean, I would look at power out of interest, but I would do almost all the training by RPE and heart rate, particularly because we, we've talked before about this cardiac drift effect. I actually want to see in an athlete uh, their ability to withstand cardiac drift. So if somebody goes out for a five-hour ride and two hours in, you're seeing cardiac drift. You go, you don't yet have the assets you need for a 100-mile uh, gravel race. I want to see somebody go out, do that 100 miles. So if in a gravel race, 100 miles for most of us is going to be a good six hours. Right. Uh, I want to see them do that with, with minimal cardiac drift. So that's... There are other ways, if you don't have power, there's other ways to tell. You can just simply tell, hey, I'm riding at the same heart rate and I seem to be just slowing to a crawl and struggling. Um, but the when I would have an athlete go out and do this training, as you know, when I was helping you get ready for a gravel race, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that aerobic threshold training. So that's your lower threshold. That's that just slightly hard intensity. Uh so, for example, if you wanted to do it by heart rate, let's say your threshold heart rate was around 175, aerobic threshold. It's going to vary for everybody, but it's going to be somewhere in that kind of 140 to 145 range. So mm -hmm. if you go out and ride that, you go, it's kind of hard, but I, I can maintain this. And you want to be able to maintain it for a long time. And I would have an athlete ride at that heart rate, regardless of what happens to their power. The power tanks shows the, the stamina, the, their ability isn't there. And that's something that we really need to work on. But this is the way you work on it, going out and doing these types of rides and, and learning to or, or developing your body's ability to stay at that kind of set heart rate and keep the intensity up. We have spoken about this several times before. Uh, interesting to note, I think, that we're going to do an entire episode on cardiac drift coming up soon. So that will play into this discussion even more. Any other thoughts there, Amos, or shall we move on to the next question? I would like to add one thing. Uh, locally, we just had a gravel event Sunday, you know, two days ago. And, uh, you know, it's a 50 miler uh, here in Rhode Island. And it's a pretty good mix of like dirt roads, uh, single track, a little bit of pavement here and there. And, uh, you know, my gravel bike happens to have a power meter on it. And I, you know, pretty religiously use a heart rate monitor. And I guess what I would, would point out is I agree with the, for me, it's like a, a heart rate zone thing with a little bit of a, a variation due to like some of the terrain. Um, but basically my average heart rate for that event was 139 and my max was like 167. And that was just like, just like a blip, you know, cause it was a, a very steep climb on it. So essentially I rode it for like a time trial for like four hours. A lot of times my approach for gravel events is like that, you know, I mean, not that I had to do a lot of them, but, you know, there was no group for me to ride with. So it was just maintain a steady effort the entire way and, you know, kind of optimize like my effort over the course of the event. And that's the direction I would tell him other, unless it's an event where he can stay with a group and then it's a little bit different. He might have to put out 
high power early so that he gets the benefit of like being able to sit in. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, this goes exactly like you said, Trevor, goes back to that type of training where you know you're going to have to eventually get into time trial mode, whether you're by yourself, maybe you're with one other person, but it's all about that very consistent, very steady pace that you can hold for a long time. And the, the training for that is something we've discussed several times before. So Now, the question I want to throw back at you, Chris, because you've done some of this type of racing and have some experience with it. And David even points this out. He says, with the exception of the first 20 miles or so, you're basically time trial. So there's a certain period of time that you're trying to stay with the leaders or with a group, depending on your level. Uh, and that tends to not be very steady. It tends to be surgy. There tends to be some attacks. And there is a certain point where you go, okay, I just got to go my own pace. What, what is the balance? What, at what point do you make that decision of, okay, now it's time to just ignore everybody else and go my pace? Yeah, I think people take different approaches. You know, a, a gravel race can have almost three types of races rolled into one. Some of them go off so fast you think you were at a cyclocross race. And then it gets into something that's akin to a road race where there's a bit of slowdown in pace and then somebody might attack a little bit and people will chase it down and there's some shuffling and stuff like that. For the most part, uh, you know, going back through my memory of the gravel races I've done, I'd say almost all of them end up being somewhat of a solo time trial or a time trial with just a small group of people, one, two, maybe, maybe 10. <laughs> um, and and f small groups might reform out on the road late in the race as people catch you or you catch them. So how do you pace these things? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you can gain a lot if you stick with a group, but you can also, if you let your, uh, if you let things get carried away or your ego's too big and you're like, I can hang with these guys, no problem. I'm getting so much of a draft. It's never going to catch up to me. You can put yourself into a place that you won't recover from because in these longer races, you're talking about 12 hours out there and there's no comparison. You could, <laughs> you know, you can get yourself into a place where you'll never recover. Um, and I've done that as well. So it, it's one of those that I don't know that you can really tell a person how to do it. There's some feeling involved. There's some decision-making you have to make in the moment. You have to, uh, you know, you could just say, I'm going to be conservative and I'm going to let those people ride away immediately and I'm going to do my thing. And there's going to be a, a group I'm with and I'm going to gain some benefit, but it's not going to be the lead group that I would really get pulled along with. Or you can say, I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to do everything I can to sit in, but I'm going to sit in that draft of the lead 40 or however many it is and just, you know, be very careful to not hang on to them too much and go into the red too many times trying to hang with that group. So it's a, it's a balancing act like a lot of times. All right, let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Ray Ferris has to do with low cadence work. My impression from your podcast is that the low cadence sessions talked about in the session were fairly short efforts at high power. However, Steve Neal of the Cycling Gym, who you have had on Fast Talk a couple times, seems to like to give his athletes sessions of several intervals of 20 to 40 minutes at low cadence at tempo power, generally 83% of FTP 
subject to an 83% of max heart rate limit on power. So he's asking here a little bit about low cadence work. He has some follow-up questions about what these types of intervals are all about. Those questions are, do these types of sessions build FTP? Are these, quote, hard workouts in the Siler polarized model? Do they have a place in a polarized model? And if so, what is it and when is it in terms of periodization blocks? And finally, do these raise the athlete toward his theoretical VO2 max, but at the cost of lowering VLA max? Does this trade-off even matter for anyone other than pro-level sprinters? So a lot to unpack there. Um, Amos, I guess I'll start with you. We we have recently had an episode all about low cadence work. I'm just curious how much low cadence you work into your training and what results you see or hope to see from doing it. Honestly, very little. One of the things that I look at is how often in events would I use low cadence. Um, in the last few years, I've been more focusing mostly on mountain bike racing and low cadence you know, is a very common scenario in certain situations, either you've entered a, a technical thing and now you have to restart the gear that you're in, or you're in a situation where you just don't have a low enough gear and you're going to be at a low cadence, a significant amount of the course. Uh, and I've done events like that. So I want to say the terrain kind of winds up dictating the cadence. So in training, I usually pick terrain that would simulate races and then it would wind up giving me those cadence ranges. Um, and I find that if somebody's competing on the road, they probably will not use low cadence that often in the event. Um, but I also feel like if you, if you use low cadence, you're prepared. So this will speak to one of the, the later questions that I saw coming up, which is, I think athletes need to be able to use a wide range of cadence. Mm -hmm. And what I find with a lot of riders is they can't, they have a very narrow range that they're capable of generating a good amount of power. And if you get a little bit outside of it, their ability to do that falls off rapidly. Um, and I think if a person is, you know, if an athlete is one of those people where they, they, they have to use a particular cadence range, but they're not able to do it effectively, then that training becomes very important for them to show improvements. Trevor, I might turn it to you for some of these specific questions that Ray had at the end. Do these types of interval workouts build FTP? Yes and no. Um, I actually, no, I almost never do short uh, big gears, except for when I do, a, there, there's a particular type of sprint work. And I think we've mentioned that, but that was kind of as a, here's an, another option. Uh, generally when I'm talking to personally talking about big gear work, it's longer. Um, so we did, uh, an episode with Sebastian Weber where we talked about this. So going to the very bottom question of, does this raise your, your theoretical or get you closer to your theoretical VO2 max, but the cost of lowering VLA max, uh, I think Sebastian Weber's answer would be, that's always a seesaw. You can't raise both. So if you are getting closer to your theoretical VO2 max, I don't care how you get there, your VLA max has to come down. Uh, so uh, yeah, I would agree. This is more a workout that you see time trialists do than something you would see a sprinter want to do. 
And plus, sitting there grinding at a big gear, that's the antithesis of sprinting. Sprinting is very high, high cadence. Uh, so a sprinter probably wouldn't want to do this. So there is sh proven benefits with time trials. A lot of time trials will do this type of work. Is it a direct, this raises your FTP? I think it hits at one of the systems that's needed to be able to sustain a very high threshold power. Um, one in particular is riding just below threshold like this is where you maximize lactate clearance. So you can really train that ability to clear lactate because that's what's often going to be a limiter in a time trial. So, I mean, if you really want to get into the weeds, you could argue you're, you're improving your ability to, to clear lactate. You're not necessarily increasing your, your threshold power, but that's going to help you to sustain a higher power. But another factor to consider is when you do this big gear work, your heart rate comes down. So at a given power, your heart rate's actually going to be significantly lower. So again, I haven't seen any research on this, but it was proposed, and I wish I could remember who proposed this in one of our previous episodes, that since your heart rate is lower at the same power, you're able to do work that, that's close to your FTP, close to your threshold power with what looks like a lower physiological strain. So there's benefits to that as well. Where does it fit in the polarized model? Well, yeah, this is right in that zone two, which they say in the polarized model to avoid, or you want to minimize. But it's never a never touch that zone. So I think this is one of those exceptions, especially if you are that time trial type rider where you go, yeah, you're in zone two, but that's okay. And for anybody wanting to check out the entire episode on big gear work that we just did, it's episode 125. All right, let's move on to our next question, which comes from Russ Sanka in Bristol, Tennessee. It's a good one for anyone that has a desk job, which I would assume is a lot of us these days. He asks, what can I do at a desk job to aid in training and recovery? I have been using a stand-up desk and a desk cycle, but I would like to hear your opinions and the research on the subject. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Trevor. I know you've actually looked into, first of all, what is a desk cycle and what does the research say on <laughs> how useful this tool is? The funny thing was I hadn't heard of a specific desk cycle. So I looked up research on that before this episode and lo and behold, there was a study and guess who did this study? Yeah, our friend Jim Peterman. Here at, at CU. Yeah. He's at Ball State, but he did this research as part of his PhD. This desk, was a desk cycle? Desk cycle, yeah. It's this little device you put underneath your desk, and it's got pedals on it, and you put your feet on it. And it's passive cycling. So it's going to actually spin it's motor, motorized spinning. Oh, really? And forces you to pedal. So you don't have to, you can sit there and work, your legs are pedaling, but you don't have to think about it. So uh, actually the technical term that I'm, I'm not going to say I knew until I saw this article from, uh, from Jim is NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Wow, interesting. So the, the, the pedaling system, the desk cycle is effectively doing the work for you. Your legs just happen to be moving right. along with it. So what they were looking at in their study was 
do you actually do any work if this thing is forcing your legs to, to spin? And what they actually discover is, yes, there, the, there was a significant increase in thermogenesis in lines with just a slow walk. Okay. So you are getting some enhanced activity from using this thing. Now, their research and all the other research that I found on, on these types of devices was really focused on the health side. Mm. The fact that it is unhealthy to sit at a desk stationary for a long period of time. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was this, Chris and I were talking about this before. There was this really interesting recent study that looked at hunter-gatherer societies and discovered that often when they weren't moving, they were squatting, which right. also had a certain amount of uh, non-movement activity to it. So really, it's unnatural for the human body to spend that much time completely just not yeah. moving, not right. doing anything. Right. So there's a lot of research to say there, there's benefits from a health perspective or this sort of thing. But I think the question is about, is there performance benefits? And I certainly have my opinion. But before I give mine, do you, do you want to jump in here? I saw this question and uh, the first thing that kind of came to my mind is that this person is trying to improve their performance uh, outside of the time that they're using to actually train. Right. And um, I think it's risky business a lot of times. Uh, and to, I usually what I tell people is like when I'm coaching is that you have to like prioritize things like your work and your family and your, your cycling. And I think a lot of people are really driven to improve their performance and then somehow mix it in with the other things that they do. And I find that it doesn't actually work out. Um, like I'd tell this guy, ah, you're probably better off, you know, sitting in a chair with the Norma tech, you know, recovery boots on than you would be, you know, spinning the desk cycle. Right. It, it's what you're saying, I think, is that it's good to, in, in this regard, compartmentalize, keep your training, training, keep your work, work, keep your recovery, recovery, and don't try to blend all of them together and, and get, try to find some way <laughs> while you're sitting at your desk to um, become a better athlete. Exactly. I have a whole bunch of like acronyms I've used with trying to explain training to people that are just becoming athletes. And, you know, one of them is concentration. And it's very difficult to concentrate on different things all at the same time. You know, the mind just doesn't work like that. And I would, I would encourage, you know, Russ to, you know, move his recovery methods to times that were probably more effective. I would add to this, we we live in this era of this really popular term, marginal gains. Mm -hmm. This little thing gives you a marginal gain. That little thing gives you a marginal gain. And I'll give you my opinion on that, which is if you are a Tour de France athlete, yes, you need to find every little marginal gain you can get because you are all super high athlete level athletes. And again, the difference between the guy who finishes last and the guy who wins is surprisingly small. Uh, but mar marginal gains accounts for about 5%. So my response is for most of us, focusing on the 95% and just getting the most out of that is all we need to do. And we don't need to look for all these little marginal gains that sometimes are going to take us in bad direction. So I'm looking at right now uh, the one study I found that gave me a bit of an answer to this, which is 
subtitle is Muscle Oxygenation Induced by Cycle Exercise Does Not Accelerate Recovery Kinetics Following Exercise-Induced Muscle Damage in Humans, a Randomized <laughs> Crossover Study. That's yes. just good, simple English right there. Right, right. Journal the, speak. The gist of the study is they looked at soccer players. They had them do some work, do some muscle damage. Mm-hmm. And then the next day had them do easy cycling to see if it helped them. And what they actually found was, no, it hurt their recovery. And that's a slight confirmation of what I suspect, which is getting on this under-the-desk bicycle device. Desk cycle, yes. Desk cycle. In between your workouts, you're not going to get any performance gains from it. It's not going to make you stronger. It's just not doing that much but could very well inhibit your ability to recover. So to me, if your focus is health and you don't like the idea that you're sitting around being completely sedentary for a long time, go for it. If you're trying to if you're looking for a little marginal gain to your performance, I think this my guess is this would have the opposite effect. And for both of you guys, is this what people refer to when they talk about quote-unquote, active recovery is actually not helping you recover at all. Yeah. So, I mean, we t- if you remember, we were talking with Dr. Andy Pruitt, what, a week ago? And he we were talking about recovery, and he just went, look, most of the recovery is just sleep. What, how does this fall into, uh, and I know that this is straying from the question itself, but recovery rides. You do a big ride one day, it's it's, um, you know, you wake up the next day, you do the staircase test, you, you can feel something in the legs, the, the ache, the burn, whatever you want to call it. I would suggest there's a lot of people that think doing an easy spin the next day is a good thing for them. I think the big thing I would point out is doing things that make you feel better versus things that actually make you better. Right. And I, I think that's kind of the point that I would get at. And to speak to that last part, you know, if if I had a choice between giving somebody that had a full-time job, active recovery and passive recovery, I would go for passive recovery. And uh, most working athletes that I've seen are basically they're under-rested because that's their problem that, you know, they're essentially under-trained and, you know, they over-trained compared to how much they're able to rest. And uh, when I see a habit, you know, a, a program like, hey, do this to help your recovery, but it involves more doing more. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. So we did an episode on this a while ago. And I will say the the study that I just read the title to contradicts that past episode. So I'm, I'm actually interested in digging deeper into this. But our theory in that episode was uh, diving into the fact that it's your immune system that handles muscle repair. And there is evidence of this hermetic effect of um, very light activity actually promotes your immune system. Well, very heavy activity actually blunts your immune system. It suppresses it. Right. So if your immune system is responsible for that repair, there is the argument to go up for a very, very easy spin that's going to promote your immune system, which is going to help the recovery. But this study right here is saying, eh, maybe not. Right, right. So it'd be and, interesting to dive deeper into this. Yeah, I, I, you know, one of the things that, that I like to do is I like to measure a lot of stuff. So, you know, so I have a Garmin like Phoenix watch that I wear all the time, and on uh, the average number of flights that I walk inside my store each day is fifty-two flights of stairs. That's a good amount. 
Yeah, that's every day. Usually, you know, 10,000 steps for the day, 50 flights of stairs. And um, so personally, I, I actually never do active recovery rides. Yeah, it's just not a thing. You you get what you need, so to speak, from working at the shop. Yeah, just moving around. Now, I want to take this question in another direction altogether, and I don't know if this was somewhere hidden in what Russ asked or not, but I feel like it's it's a worthy discussion. If somebody actually just had a desk job and wasn't an athlete but wanted to become an athlete from sitting at his desk all day or her desk all day, are there ways that uh, they should go about doing that or ways that they could make that transition easier? And I'd start with you, Amos, here. I think there is. Usually the, the biggest thing I have most regular people do would be to stretch. Hmm. And not not necessarily because it's really going to make all that much of a difference, but I think it it, it will tick something in, in your mind on a regular basis that you're an athlete, which is a very big transition for the average person. So having a constant reminder of a, some small habit that they could do repeatedly to constantly remind them, I'm an athlete, I'm looking to perform better. And I, I kind of see that as part of it, whether they would do some under the desk cycle hmm. or stretch or just how they ate, you know, how they reached for something, all of that stuff should be part of their, their everyday life. And, and so tell me a little bit more about what this transition looks like. How long, do, you know, it sounds like this is something that you've done before. You've worked with a lot of people that are new to the sport. Um, but it also pertains to people that are maybe just taking it to the next level or wanting to be, quote unquote, more elite. What's that transition look like in more detail? From what I've seen, it takes years for people to do it you know, they're, if they're coming from a background of like no competitive sports, it takes a very long time for them to transition and, and in their mind, think of themselves as being an athlete or being a cyclist more specifically. And they need constant reminders. You know, it needs to always, always be in there. And it takes a long time for the person to be reminded of these things before they start to, it's basically who they are. Yeah, it and, becomes an identity rather than just a pastime. Yeah. And, you know, so I tell people it can start in a lot of ways, you know, and it sounds kind of small, but it might be what kind of socks they wear. Mm. <laughs> you know, I know it's not, again, you know, we all laugh, but, you know, if somebody buys a pair of cycling socks and decides that they're going to wear those socks to work every day, it's a little reminder that they're a rider. It's part of who their identity is. And it may be like kind of like Superman where it's like underneath your, your clothes, you can rip it off and you're like, hey, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. Well, I kind of yeah, like I got that. a million of them. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I get that because – so I also have one of those Garmin Phoenix watches. And I have had several of my friends who are completely in the business world go, well, why do you wear that watch? I mean, the thing is giant. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look that professional. So they're like, why aren't you getting an Apple Watch or why aren't you getting this or that to, to, to show a more professional 
look. And every time I get that question, I'm like, but I'm an athlete. Mm. And there's an athlete's watch. <laughs> and it's just that nice little reminder on my wrist of, of where my focus is. I mean, I, I think it's very important and it's not spoken about it enough. Let's, uh, let's move on to our next question. Well, we get answer. No death cycle, get a Phoenix watch. Oh, there you go. And some socks. <laughs> and some socks. With some stripes. Socks. But don't make them too long or too short. They got to be just the right length. Yeah. They're not going to do any movement under your desk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really still puzzled by the desk cycle and the fact that it's moving your legs. You're not moving the pedals. If you have to control it yourself. And I actually found a, a study that, that addressed this. Do you lose your focus on your work? Mm, I see, yes. Because you're, you're splitting between trying to make sure you continue pedaling and working. So the idea is if this keeps, keeps your legs moving passively, you can be 100% focused on your work while still getting some activity. Mm-hmm. Very good. I was kind of surprised I didn't see a mention of uh, a TENS unit. Oh, I don't even know what that is. You know, where you would stimulate the muscles. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. You know, which would be another passive, another passive activity that is shown to have benefits. Mm -hmm. But obviously this, the death cycle seems like a a more convenient way to get that to happen. Yeah. I guess if you're in a work, a a place of business um, with electrodes attached to your so body like and a, for such a fun <laughs> zoom call <laughs> hi everybody <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, a slightly different um mindset between those two user groups there i'm looking at the desk cycle online right now uh only 200 bucks on sale we might have to buy one and do a little study on our own trevor they're well rated yeah. Five, four and a half <laughs> out of five stars here on this website that I shall not mention. Well, so again, <laughs> I just want to emphasize, we, we, the, we were talking about performance. Yes. And from a health standpoint, yeah. It, it, from everything I read, there seems to be benefits. So there, our only negative was if you're looking for it in some way to improve your performance, no, I think you're going in the wrong direction. But I don't want to put down the product at all. Yeah. No, Understood. Absolutely. All right. Let's let's move on to the kind of the opposite of the desk cycle, which is fixed gear riding. This question comes from Ivan Stanzio from Milan, Italy. He asks, I love to ride my fixie in the, quote, off season to train on. I feel like it helps me with training and strength that I can't get on a geared bike. Is this true? If so, what am I gaining and how does that help me when I go back to the geared bike. Oh no, this will keep your legs spinning whether you like it or not, <laughs> even when you're going over your handlebars from experience. <laughs> right, right. Yes, we won't get into the practical and safety um, issues regarding riding fixed gear bikes out on the road. Plenty of people can do it if you're skilled at it. Um, but yeah, we're, I don't know if we're re- recommending it or not recommending it. We're, we're agnostic when it comes to fixed gears. But let's talk about the training benefits. Amos, uh, have you ever done much track riding? Have you ever been a bike messenger in your past Well, he's a New Englander. I, uh, I, I have never uh, – I, I have ridden on the track, but I wouldn't call it anything. But uh, I have ridden fixed gear bikes pretty extensively. And 
I, the benefits that I like, I think apply to people that are maybe newer in that it gives that cadence range that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, being able to perform at both a high and a low cadence. Um, I think one of the things that I, I don't really hear spoken about too much is the the idea of going out and riding it, you know, where I live, there's some rolling hills, nothing very large, but then using basically the, the back pedal motion to control the cadence or the speed. And I've always felt like I, there was some benefit to that, but I don't, I've never seen that quantified in any way. So not sure what that would be, but it does feel effective. So it sounds, you say you've done a lot of this type of riding. When would you work it into your training? How often? You know, I've had years where I rode it pretty exclusively during the winter. Wow. Um, yeah, usually postseason. It, it was something I, I spent some time racing in Belgium and one of the uh, recommendations for the off season uh, at the time. Now, you know, you realize that somebody that's given me the recommendation was a professional racer in the 60s. So take that. Uh, as a consideration, but um, my he would say basically do maybe a certain amount of mileage to start start and then transition into using your regular bike, uh, you know, with gears, uh, and that might be say you know a thousand miles, and uh, which isn't too hard to accumulate in a pretty short period of time. You know, might be you know three or four weeks. You know, for somebody who's pretty active. Yep. You know. Right competitive racer and you would go out open roads over rollers um and just always with the same gear or would you would you change the gear uh basically i ride it everywhere you know so i mean at the time when i first started doing this i uh actually would deliver newspapers in it mm. and then i and, and i would do my train and rides on it and um the gearing itself, I usually wouldn't change it much. Uh, usually what I changed was the distance that I would ride in the terrain. So I usually would transition to longer distances or more more hilly terrain to, to kind of change like uh, the difficulty of it. Mm -hmm. Great. And Trevor, so, can you quantify any of the gains here? Well, first of all, again, it's uh, so my first year living in Boston. I went to, so the big group ride was the Belmont Wheelworks ride mm -hmm. every, I think it was Saturday mornings. And I remember the, the first time I went there, it was probably December, January, something. It was, it was cold. It was wintry. And I showed up on a regular bike with the ability to shift gears and just got the dirtiest <laughs> <Oops>. looks. Because <laughs> yeah. everybody on that really was just like, why are you not on a fixie? What is mm -hmm. wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I've said every, we've said in the show before that every region has its little eccentricities. Upstate New York, you don't use handlebar tape. Mm -hmm. uh, New England, in the winter, you ride a fixie. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think you can make the arguments for pedal stroke and all these other things. I think a big factor was slush and crap on the road. Sure. It's a lot easier to maintain a fixie. Mm -hmm. But I will also say, um, certainly when I moved to uh, British Columbia, uh, Hushang, my coach up there, put me on a fixed gear bike. Uh, because I was a grinder and he wanted me to work on my pedal stroke and he made sure I used a gear. So when I was on the group rides, I basically couldn't drop much below 90 RPM. Uh, and it was great work on pedal stroke. So I would say there, there is a neuromuscular gain to it in terms of building strength. 
I, I would have a hard time, and I haven't seen research in this, so I'm just kind of making yeah. it up as I go here. Sure. But I, I don't see how it would give you any gain besides just going out on a regular bike and a big gear. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it maybe uh, strength here is being used uh, somewhat incorrectly for that uh, gr- power throughout a greater range, you know, and it sounds like that can be effective because effectively you are doing big gear work, some part of the ride. If you're, if you're on rolling terrain, you're, you're spinning fast. And so a neuromuscular component on other parts of that same ride, given the terrain. And so it just helps with, with cadence. It helps with, um, you know, pedal stroke and feel and all of that. I mean, and just to give like a, a recent anecdote for me is this is like maybe two months ago, we had a group ride out of the shop. And uh, so I run SRAM like access. And what I didn't realize is one of the batteries died in the shifter. So we left the shop and a lot of times I don't shift too much, you know, about half mile, I went to go shift, wouldn't work. And I could have just turned around and gone home. The gear I was in was pretty low, but I decided to keep doing the rest of the ride. I did the whole ride in one gear. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, and, you know, some of my other experiences, you know, would say like, if I had not done the fixed gear training that I had done when I was young, I wouldn't have had the neuromuscular capability to pedal those kinds of RPMs to keep up on the ride. Yeah. I mean, I think that that in itself, whether you are riding a fixed gear or a single speed that doesn't have a fixed hub, or you ride a geared bike, but you essentially force yourself to ride in a single gear an entire ride is a good training tool for that, uh, you know, the winter months or things like that. When you're trying to um, get some of these gains, these neuromuscular gains and and cadence range gains and things like that, when you wouldn't want to do that in other parts of the season. Yeah, I I, th- I think it, it's it's pretty safe to point out because I've looked at a lot of um, downloads is that most riders will operate in a very narrow range, you know, when you look at the cadences that they use and, you know, they, like I said, when they get out of those ranges, they have a lot of difficulty, whether you, they run out of gears at the high end or they run out of gears at the low end and they get ridden away from, not because they're not physically capable of it, but more like it just doesn't feel right. And I think the feeling that you can develop from having those wide ranges and having to, to keep up is a benefit that's not spoken about much. So one warning for anybody who's thinking about trying this. So there's a difference between a single speed and a fixed gear. So single speed is just like a normal It has a free bike. hub. Yeah. It has a free yes. hub. So if you stop pedaling, you coast. You, coast. <laughs> you can coast. Yeah. If you yeah. stop pedaling on a fixed gear bike. Yeah, don't do that. Your bike bucks, you go over the handlebars, it's really not fun. So be careful if you try this. It's like that first time you use clipless pedals and you get to a red light and try to put your foot down and you just fall over. Yeah, you forget. Yeah. The problem is on a fixed gear, you're doing that at high speed. Right. Yes. Um, Certainly, you can ride a fixed gear and also have brakes on the bike so that you have that control so that you're not having to resist or backpedal to slow down. Um, Again, we're not necessarily recommending this. We're not recommending this. We're just saying just be careful if you try this. And, of course, this is why fixed gear bikes or track bikes usually 
are not on open roads because you don't have the ability to brake or slow down if you're new to it uh, um, as you would with a, a, a quote-unquote normal bike. Definitely do not ride in a group until you have had a lot of experience. <laughs> yes, yeah. right, yeah. right. But then go on YouTube and uh, search for like fixed gear rides down Stelvio and see what the guys can do on fixed gear bikes. <laughs> and um, don't try to do that yourself because you'll yes. die. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next question, which comes from Peter Burkhard. He asks, can you address quote, lunch ride syndrome, the tendency to go out the door and immediately hammer because you've only got 45 minutes. Do you have suggestions for lunch ride workouts of an hour or less? Well, you look at the structure of the workouts, you know, most of the time I tell people that uh, a pretty simple structure for a workout would be to have a warm up, a work part of the, the workout where you're trying to achieve something specific and then a cool down. And I try not to make things too complicated. So the person would have a good mindset of, I need to gradually transition from I'm doing my job and I need a few minutes both to get my body ready and also get my mind ready to, to do something, you know, that is not work related. So usually it takes a little bit of a transition. And then, you know, for the, the middle part of the ride, it, yes, I mean, you could do anything from an endurance pace to all out Strava type efforts, you know, and then have a cool down, you know, and be able to get benefit out of the workout. Um, but there's also benefit to having rides that are just steady, you know, I mean, it, we, in sort of some of the earlier questions, they had talked about like a big gear ride for a steady long effort. Um, you know, that might be another way to use the time, you know, where you're trying to maximize it but always keeping that I need to warm up I need to cool down and I need to focus in the middle I think one thing that uh Peter really wants us to say is don't do these every day right Trevor so I was trying to figure out if he was asking that question or if he's referring to the fact that you are going hard basically as soon as you're out the door mm. uh so I'll agree with both. I mean, all the same rules apply here. Just because you have less time or you're limited doesn't mean that you start training badly. So if you're, if you're riding at lunch every day, don't make every day hard. Uh, a couple of them, if that's your interval work, make it your interval work. Uh, it sounds like he's talking about, I have very limited time. This is the only time I can work out. I have 45 minutes. Well, that's less than optimal. So I think yeah, agree. You need a warm up, but this is the case where you go. Well, warm up's probably going to be pretty short, and get right to the interval work. I have, I have the answer. You get a desk cycle, and you do your <laughs> you do your warm up while you're working for 15 minutes bef right before you take your lunch break. So who invited you, you to the you show? Go, <laughs> you go out, and you're already warmed up, and you don't have to worry about it. It's perfect. We are now getting a death cycle <laughs> yes, just so are. that we could experiment on you. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> you know, I would – so my suggestion – yeah, I mean this is not optimal, but sometimes you have to deal with less than optimal. And my suggestion would be you know, figure out an interval workout that you can do in that time. You also have to factor in 
you might be working in a city or not near good roads. And if you have 45 minutes, you don't have time to get to the good roads. Yeah. Uh, so what can you do that's safe around where you you live? So I'm not going to recommend a particular interval workout because I don't know the, the circumstances. But the warm-up can be relatively short. I would get a couple five-second sprints in, which can really help to open up the legs and get you ready for a harder effort. And then just get to it and know it's going to be a little bit miserable mm-hmm. because you didn't get as much of a warm-up as, as you would like. I mean, this is effectively every day of my life. I do it twice a day. My commute is between 45 minutes and an hour. If I really go hard, it's only 35 minutes and there's virtually no warm-up. I think to answer Peter's question, yeah, there's several ways we could interpret it. But yes, you can get an effective workout in 45 minutes if you do it right. You could warm up for 10, 15 minutes. um, Then you could do maybe three hill repeats of six minutes each uh, and then a cool down. And that, that's something, right? You could do some big gear work in there, warm up, big gear work in the middle, cool down. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could just get some more volume by going out and riding steady. Uh, yeah, 45 minutes isn't ideal, but there are effective ways to utilize that time. And especially if you get the, the, the desk cycle and warm up beforehand, you maximize that 45 minutes. Yeah, I did plug it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Chris, getting paid. Chris is looking I'm for a theme to run paid. through this episode, and he just decided desk cycle is it. Let's go back. How do you work a desk cycle do into you know that, fixed gear that, biking? Uh, Amos is the desk cycle distributor for all of New England. Did you know that? He is Stop now, by, actually. try it out. Demo units available. <laughs> How do you so let's go back to our question of uh training by heart rate for gravel racers. How's the death cycle work into that, Chris? Uh well, I mean, <laughs> clearly you could get just way more volume if you rode the death cycle all day long. You might not get much work done. You actually had an answer. But I'm, I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> hey. Yeah, it's all about the volume. Do they have the gravel version of the death cycle? They do. It kind yeah, of bounces it, it, around it, it, underneath it, your it, desk. It, 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 uh, you put it on like a wobbly table and it, it moves around. Yep. They also have a fixed gear version. <laughs> I actually think because it's pedaling your legs, it it's, actually it is a it fixed, may be gear. fixed gear. Only. I think we've actually yeah. covered everything. So Mario Cipollini's quote, we know everything about their watts, their heart rate, but of what interest that doesn't tell us anything about them. What does the death cycle tell us about you? Basically, it tells you that um, I, I don't want to make, pe- make fun of people that have a death cycle. I was going to say it's pretty dorky. <laughs> but actually, you know, if if it's all you can do and it helps you and you put your nice cycling socks on and you go on the ride, the desk cycle, maybe you think you start to think of yourself more of it as an athlete. And that's a good thing. And then it, it gets into the aesthetics of being an athlete. So there you go. So I think you haven't brought up. The Phoenix. Can the Phoenix connect to the death cycle? <laughs> I, I the, Veni- the Phoenix, I'm sure, could connect to the death cycle. I'm not sure the death cycle is sophisticated enough to connect back to the Phoenix. Let's put it that way. Maybe you could get the foot pod. <laughs> whoa, whoa, what is this foot pod? I got to look this up. What do we Yeah, get? yeah. Garmin makes the foot pod for running. You could probably get the oh, running tiny gotcha. There we go. Yes. We have brought the entire episode together. <laughs> Full circle. The death cycle is... Is the entire theme. Yes. 
Good job, Chris. Thank you. No problem. I expect the check to arrive any moment now from Death Cycle. You know, the other thing with Peter's question is I have found that people that use very low volumes of training that he's talking about, that it isn't exactly terrible that they just go out there and ride really hard for the 45 minutes that they've got. They seem to be able to recover from it. Yeah, you know, that that's another part of it. I, I do this sort of twice a day, sometimes five days a week. Um, and if you do that, maybe that's the week when you skip the long weekend ride. This is all, it's hard to tell somebody how to effectively use this in the context of their greater training plan because there's decision-making they have to make on their end. If you do 45-minute rides every day and they're super hard, then yeah, don't go out and smash yourself on the weekend or do the the weekend group ride where you're smashing yourself. If you have 45 minutes three times a week and you do it really easy, then yeah, maybe on the weekend you have to flip that paradigm around and you go hard and big and all of that sort of stuff. So... Um, the, the 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 general answer is yes, you can effectively use that amount of time, uh, but you have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would highly recommend that they structure that time that they do have. So our last question comes from Jim Case. Yes, this is my dad. He is a cyclist. He's been a cyclist for a long time. He's 78 now. He just turned 78. Just did a 78-mile ride for his birthday. Um, he wants to know... So I'm 78 years old. Uh, the races I get to do, are they basically don't exist. How do I stay motivated? How do I stay competitive now that I'm this old and I don't have anybody to race with? Amos, I know you ride with my dad quite a bit. Uh, what would you say to him? I think that, you know, your dad is probably the – the rider that I most often point to, to people that come in to my business, you know, my bike store as a role model to follow. And, you know, like in all the older athletes, I always tell them, if you look at Strava and I have a lot of older athletes in my store. um, And if you look at Strava, now all of a sudden you've got a platform that will point out riders of your own age. And repeatedly when I deal with older athletes, that's the thing that they want most is just the ability to be, you know, to compare themselves to people that are most similar to themselves. And Strava as a platform is the only one I know of that really does that effectively. So I think it's an awesome tool for that. Very good. Well, Amos was a pleasure. Uh, Next time I'm back in Rhode Island, I'll look you up. We'll go for a ride. You're going to ride with me this time. I'll I'll ride with you this time. Well, you know, last time COVID, hopefully hopefully COVID's over by the time I see you again and we can actually ride (laughs) without masks and all of that. So uh, pleasure having you on the show. It was great. I really look forward to it. I had fun. It was great to meet you. Really enjoyed this. Yeah, you're welcome. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Please email us at fasttalk at fasttalklabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Amos Brumble, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.